We have a fascinating show for you this week. A little bit later on, we're going to meet Denai Guerrera. Now, you know her from The Walking Dead. You know her from The Black Panther, all kinds of movies. Did you know that she's also a playwright? Did you know she's also an activist? We'll find out all about her a little bit later on in the show. First, though, I want to tell you a little bit about Daryl Hammond. If you were a Saturday Night Live fan, you know Daryl Hammond from the 14 years he spent impersonating people like Ted Koppel and Bill Clinton on that show. He's got a couple of audio books coming out. One, I can't really say the title on the radio. The first part is God, if you're not up there, dot, dot, dot. Can't say the rest. And the other one is called That's Clinton. I spoke with him recently about the audiobooks, and I just wanted to tell him, to start off with, how great the books sound. They're very conversational and engaging. I've got to hear some of it myself. <laughs> I, I was concerned, you know, because I, um, doing that much material and paying attention to the words and mm-hmm. giving each word, you know, its due um, diligence um, was really hard, hard work, so I'm glad to I'm glad to hear it came off conversational. That sounds great. It, it, I hope you hear it. It, it so. does. I mean, you know, working in radio on my end here, we always strive to make things sound like it's the first time we've ever said them, even if we're reading something and that kind of thing. And even though the book has literary turns of phrase, there's one phrase that I'll paraphrase. I won't get it exactly right, but you talk about, uh, uh, I think, bodies on the street in New York, like uh, uh, skeleton umbrellas after a rainstorm. There's a line oh, in the. Oh yeah, As I was saying in the in the great hall uh, leading up to the Saturday Night Live theater, mm-hmm. there are artistic souls thrown about <laughs> like umbrella carcasses after a hard Eighth Avenue rain. And it's a fantastic line, and yet it still sounds very. Uh, when when you're listening to it, it sounds very conversational, and and I enjoyed that very much uh, about this. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I worked. <laughs> Pardon me, I have a little cough today. Yeah, yeah. I worked pretty hard in that booth. Yeah, I'm glad it came out okay. Now, tell me what prompted you to write this book in the first place, because it is confessional. It revealed a side to you when the book came out that I don't think any of us really were aware of. And I remember when the book first came out, uh, people were kind of shocked that for all those years that we saw you on television, we had no idea of of what was going on behind the scenes. What prompted the writing of the book? Well, I mean, if I may call myself a survivor, I did survive um, sexual assault, um, torture, beatings. I did stay alive, so I guess in that sense I'm a survivor. But I, from what I can tell and talking to other people who've had other similar experiences, you there was a period in your life when you weren't allowed to tell anyone mm-hmm. because something much, much worse would happen. You know? um, that's sort of the contract between perpetrator and victim. Um, let me keep doing this to you, and I won't do anything worse. If you tell anyone, then the unimaginable will happen. I'll do worse to you. So that's sort of perp-victim contract 101. Um, my uh, the, the bad guy in the book are the... Uh, the protagonist, let's call, or antagonist, let's call it, um, died. And when that happened, I couldn't wait to open up. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, I, you know, it, it really was sort of uh, an instinctive thing. It wasn't even really that 
thought out or that reason, I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell what had happened and what had been happening in my world where I was forced to keep the secret for 50 years. Does it feel like it is encouraging other people who may have had similar upbringings to read this book or now listen to it on Audible and and say, I, you know what, he survived all this, I can too. Was that part, in the back of your mind at all or was it simply a cathartic idea of getting it out? Yeah, it's it's sort of like um, it's the strangest thing. I lost. I know that I did have a, a good career at SNL and all of that. And I have health care. I have you know a decent place to live, a comfortable home, and I have things that I that you want out of life. Um, but I lost a lot of things. You know, it was, it was years and years of relationships that never worked and I didn't know why. It was years and years of cutting my wrist and not really understanding why. And so when you look at what you've lost, and I've lost some really precious stuff because I didn't know what was wrong with me, yeah. When someone came to me and said, hey, what if you can help someone? I thought, yeah, I'll do that, sure. You know, when the people at HarperCollins are like, you know, you can help somebody with this book. Um, you know, I've screwed up so much stuff in my life, and to have a, you know, a mother come up to me as has happened in Sarasota, Florida, and in, in Los Angeles at at an excess Hollywood taping, and come up and say that the book saved the child's life. Well, I didn't save their life. I just told the story about these great doctors that I had met along the way using Saturday Night Live money. You know, I mean, I'm not. There was a time when I was making great money. I don't anymore. I make enough. I'm comfortable. Mm -hmm. But um, I've been thinking about myself my whole life. And for one minute to have someone say, uh, you did something for someone else, it felt pretty good. I imagine so. And one of the... I guess coping mechanisms that you came up with when you were younger, and we'll we'll move on in a little bit. I just think this is important for people to hear, though, uh, because I think that people will be drawn to hearing this in an audiobook form in your own voice as well. But I, I'd like to hear about how you used impressions and and mimicry uh, because it helped distract when you were young and sort of took you to another place. Yeah. Um... My mother could was a really talented impressionist in an era when we didn't even know what that word meant. Mm-hmm. I don't even think there was a word for being able to transform yourself and talk like other people. My mother would do the bakers and the coaches and the neighbors <laughs> and you know the mailman, and she could talk like other people. She particularly enjoyed. Um, doing all the voices or repeating or mimicking the voices from an album of A Christmas Carol, which is, to me, the most interesting. Personally, it was it was so great to perform A Christmas Carol in the book, or just a piece of it, the same way I had with her when, when, when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Right. But I discovered that I could also talk like other people. And when I did those voices, she was delighted. I mean, he's talking about someone that really never paid attention to me, 
um, at all, at all, until it was time to be to, to, to be violent. And um, I developed the sense that if I can get really, really, really good at this, I can get out of this house. So that was the fantasy that I had. You know, I mean, <laughs> certainly didn't know that there was going to be a Saturday Night Live along the way. Well, and, and it worked. I mean, I loved listening to you talk about going to Saturday Night Live, to the auditions, and then uh, going back to a club where you had been told, nope, you you just don't have it. You will never have a career. Get out of here and don't come back. And Lauren Michaels took you back there to, to give you one last, uh, I guess, audition on a stage. And then going to Saturday Night Live. And then we, we, we follow along with the kind of gradual buildup uh, through that first season, starting with uh, Marielle Hemingway on the first show and all that. Uh, and then mm-hmm. moving up into the Clinton impression, which really changed everything for you and kind of really came to define that time that you were on Saturday Night Live for so many years. Tell me a little bit about right. the experience of, of being so closely identified with this character that you have created. And it's not just a straightforward impression. One of the points you make in the book is you start there and then you amplify it somehow for, for comedy. Yeah, yeah that was the, that's the Dana Carvey uh, formula. Mm-hmm. You know, you... You start with accuracy, as accurate as you can get. You know, we're after a while you get pretty good at duplicating some, someone's voice. But at that point, it's really only a magic trick. You're talking about a place where you're going to see words that you've never seen before, and you're on the air. Like you could be on the air with millions of people watching, and here comes here comes cue cards with brand new dialogue you've never seen. So. <laughs> To adapt dialogue you've never seen, never laid eyes on, it's much easier to be funny if you're doing a cartoon or a caricature of the person. Right. So, I mean, it's it's nice to be able to duplicate the voice, and that and we start there. But by the time it gets to air, we have stretched it all out of shape. You know, Sean Connery, for instance, was much more accurate the first few times I did him, and then when the writers start playing around with it and you start kidding around, we, I I consciously. Uh, it began to exaggerate the voice so that it was it was, for want of a better word, funnier. You know, I used to have pictures of there was a um, a, an artist who did characters named Hirschfeld in mm-hmm. New York, and I yep. would keep pictures of the characters around because if you look at those caricatures, you know, they look more like the person than a photograph, and yet, you know, um, Catherine Hepburn's nose isn't that long. You know, Spencer Tracy's nose isn't that big. It, you know, it, they they stretch and pull things out of shape, and we see the person. It illuminates the person a little bit better than a straight picture. So he was my idol, and he was my role model as I tried to move along. But the part, problem with Saturday Night Live is, you know, as Lauren Michael says, the show doesn't go on because it's ready. Right. It goes on because it's 1130. That was Daryl Hammond. You can find his audio books at audible.ca. He's sticking around for the next couple of segments. We're going to talk more about the impressions that he learned how to do for Saturday Night Live. Welcome back. We're in conversation with Daryl Hammond. Now, you know him from Saturday Night Live, probably 
best for his impression of Bill Clinton. That is an impression that stuck with him for many, many years. But you know, we started talking about this in the last segment. It's not always easy. You don't always get it right the first time. And as we left off the last time, he quoted Lorne Michaels saying, you know, we're not always on because we're ready. We're on because it's 1130 on Saturday night. We pick up the conversation with Daryl Hammond. You don't take your voice out there because it's ready. You take it out there because it's 1130. And I, you know, it's not like, for instance, if, if you were just an impressionist, like, say, in Vegas or something, where you had years to perfect, uh, perfect your voice. At SNL, you might have hours. If you have six hours, you're lucky. You're really lucky. Because I mean, of the news like, cycle, right? Something happens yeah, in the news, and they're like, today you are going to be Ted Koppel right now. Yeah, it's like the time I, I the first time I did Geraldo Rivera. You know, I know we were going to do something about Cheney that weekend, and then a story came out about Geraldo, and suddenly they're like, no, go and work on Geraldo for three hours, and let's see how far you can get in three hours. And it, you know, you hope that you've done a voice like that somewhere before, Mm -hmm. so that you can get there a little bit faster, but you know, it doesn't always work. And as I look back at the 139 or so that I put out there on the air, I I feel like I got where I wanted to go with maybe 30 or 40 of them, but the rest of them are, you know, still works in progress, but the world is looking at them like they're your, you know, your best foot forward, but they're not always. You're your best foot forward under that time constraint. But really, if you had a few more months, you feel like you could, you know, improve it. The the Sean Connery uh, Jeopardy sketches, I think, really pushed the envelope for what was acceptable on television quite often. And I often wondered as I was watching them, because the joke was, is that Sean Connery would misread the categories in a way that, that always ended up being kind of randy or, or uh, something a little bit outrageous. How did you get away with that? Because I've always heard that the censors for a long time at NBC were very, very strict about everything. I mean, I'm, I'm told, and I don't know if this is true, but I can look back and see instances where what I'm about to tell you actually happened, we would do sometimes things in dress rehearsal that were so disturbingly disgusting <laughs> that a censor would choose between that and your mother's a whore. Right. You know? Um, I don't know if that's a technique. I mean, Lauren Michaels is a crafty guy. Maybe he really was a technique. But that's kind of how we did it. <clears throat> I mean, the stuff that we threw out Although it didn't have profanity in it, it, it was upset. It was disgusting. <laughs> but by the time we modified it, uh, when it got on air, you know, it, it was just right for the crowd. And that's one of those ones, the Sean Connery one is one of those ones that doesn't make sense at all anyway. You know, usually with a joke, the, the audience has to understand your premise and agree with it. So there's no one that's going to agree with you if you tell them that Sean Connery is stupid. Doesn't right. make sense. Why, why are you telling that joke? It's, or that he's homophobic, or that he hates Alex Trebek. It's one of those rare instances where <laughs> something that was just so silly, uh, but actually kind of smart, clicked with the crowd. But I know that we didn't expect it. There's another audio book that you're doing. There's two, and it's, I, I guess not. it's an assortment of stories from the book that you're telling, and you do it live. And I listen to a lot of that, and, and uh, man, it's funny. And again, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, a real personality that shines through here. And I always think that, 
you know, if you're doing stand-up, if you're telling stories on stage, that the audience uh, needs to feel the connection point to you somehow. And I loved the way that you told these stories because it kind of, as a, a listener, and I didn't see it in a club, I was sitting, listening to it on my computer at home, uh, but it felt to me uh, as though uh, you were really painting a very vivid picture that the experience wasn't one that I'd had, certainly, uh, but I could, I could be drawn into it and felt like I got to know you a little better. You know, it's it, the cellar, the comedy cellar was, you know, I probably did 300 sets a year there for many years. I love that place. And it was, yeah, and it, it was an interesting place to, to learn how to be a comic and to sort of cut your teeth because on a night when Dave Chappelle and and Chris Rock and Wanda Sykes and Sarah Silverman and Ray Romano and Kevin James, and these on a night when those comics went up before you, <laughs> you really have to learn how to focus and connect with that crowd. You really have to strain to to put you know um, a finer point on everything that you're doing. And then you know, and the, I did it. I worked out there for years, and, and after a while, um, I discovered that the audience likes to, to be talked to a little bit. Yeah. Um, Especially in New York, I mean, they're so they're such a hip savvy crowd. They they like a little a little a little ribbing once in a while, and so uh, I started doing that because I never really felt like I was as funny as those other guys or those other people. So you know, one way I could assist myself was to learn how to do crowd work, and um, and that I guess comes forth in, in the uh, the tape. It, I'm just reading stories from the I think some people have called it a stand-up album, but it's not. It's it's stories from the book and uh, in, in front of a live audience. Yeah. And, and, we, the, and, there, and we kept the funny ones, you know? Yeah, well, we learned about your colonoscopy and <laughs> and many other things. And again, you know, I, I've had colon cancer. I think that the more people talk about colonoscopies in public, the more the stigma goes away and the more lives will be saved. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that, you know, when you play a guy like Bill Clinton and the world is so who's the world is so obsessed with, you become really aware pretty soon of how unremarkable you yourself actually are. <laughs> but the idea and the reality was, you know, here was an anesthesiologist, you know, uh, ask me what would Clinton say, you know, while this. <laughs> While this procedure is going on, which is um, invasive, boy, yeah, it's so invasive, <laughs> and and of course, the reason they're doing it is on your mind as well. And she comes in and says, "What would Clinton say?" Well, that actually, you can't write that. Yeah, who would believe it? But it's true. You're listening to my conversation with Daryl Hammond. He's an actor. He's a stand-up comic. He was on Saturday Night Live for 14 years. He's also an author. The book is called God, If You're Not Up There, dot, dot, dot. I can't say the rest of it on the radio. And he has another one out called That's Clinton, which is kind of a collection of the best bits from his first book read aloud on a stage in front of an audience. It is great stuff. We're going to come back and spend a bit more time with Daryl Hammond as he talks about how Bill Clinton dominated his life for the years he was doing that impression on TV. Stay with us. We've been talking with Daryl Hammond. He is, of course, from Saturday Night Live. We've been talking about that. We've been talking about his Bill Clinton impression. 
He's got a couple of audiobooks out right now that you can find at audible.ca. One is called God, If You're Not Up There, dot, dot, dot. As I've said earlier, I can't say the rest of the title on the radio. And then there's another one called That's Clinton, which is him in front of a live audience telling some stories. It is engaging stuff. It's a lot of fun. He's a great storyteller. And he told me a story in this upcoming segment that is hurtful, that is funny, that is sad. It's a story about him reaching the bottom and still being recognized for his best-known character. Here's Daryl Hammond. He did dominate my world. I mean, I you know, there was a night, one awful dark occasion, when I smoked crack one night. Well, they called this portion of the book, That's Clinton, mm-hmm. because I was in a crack house, and looking like I look, and the owner of the house uh, came over to my friend who brought me there and said, Hey, man, you can't bring that dude in here. That dude is police. And people started looking at me as police, as the police, from across the room between puffs off a crack pipe. A topless woman went, that's Clinton. No, that's Clinton. He on TV. <laughs> wow. And how, how do you respond in a moment like that? You've got a crack pipe in your hand. And you're being identified for this character you played on TV for so long. Well, at the moment, I was like, yeah, I'm not cops, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I I realized that I was in a, in a much safer place because I remember when the guy took me, first approached me that evening, the one and only time that I did crack, and told me he would buy the crack if I would pay for it. And then he told me he would protect me wherever we went. And what I found out was I look a lot like an undercover cop, apparently. Mm-hmm. So it, it was nice to know, you know, I'm just one of y'all. <laughs> yeah. But it was also at a time when, you know, I was in this, I was in a crack house. Yeah. And I swear to you, as I live and breathe, on the wall, I don't even know if I put this in the book, the prayer of St. Saint Francis, which is the uh, 12th step, uh, right. 11th, 11th step prayer, called the 11th step prayer, was on the wall. And I swear to you, I thought to myself, I got to get out of here. I don't belong here. If I stay here, I'm going to get hooked and I'll never leave. I'll, I'll never forget that. Wow. I thought it, you know, when in my sort of hallucinatory state, I sort of deemed it as uh, a little message from on high, like, Daryl, get out of there. You felt sorry for yourself long enough. Get out. It's it's funny when you can recognize those kind of uh, hinges, those epiphanies in your life. Oh, my God. You you can't. The funny thing is, when, when people go, boy, that's a really horrible story or whatever, I look back on it and go, and, and, and along the way, there was always someone that came from nowhere to, to help me. I, I'm, I don't know how to put it in the way. When I, was in, when I was in jail in the Caribbean, you know, one of the guards took me, took an interest in me and tried to improve my situation for me. It's, just, it's sort of like that. So it's really important to remember that not all of it was bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of it was really good. Even though it might not have seemed really good at the time. You know, that idea of seeing 
the the eleven step prayer in a crack house, you might go, oh, "What am I doing in this crack house?" Turns out to be a good thing. Might have felt different at the it in is, the it moment. Inspired me, like Daryl, you've you've come too far afield. Mm-hmm. You've wandered way too far away from home. Yep. And at least I was able to get out of there based on that. I don't know, based on that temporary feeling, you know. And of course, I mean, I never went back to it because <clears throat> I, I went to my doctor uh, that afternoon, and she called my other doctors, and they had me in a hospital by nighttime as an intervention. Like, yeah, it saved your life. This cannot happen again. Yep. You are the only person that I've ever spoken to that Trump has tweeted about. How surreal uh-huh. is that? Your phone must blow up. You're, it, 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 it does, does it blow your mind? You've met five yeah, presidents. I mean, it, it really does. You know, I mean, what I've learned along the way is I, I'm, an, I'm an average person in really unusual circumstances. And so I'm an average dude. And I, I know I worked hard to get good at, at to improve my talent, to be on SNL. But um, that's the extraordinary uh, place. That's um, And after a while, it just gets, it gets to be like, too, it's like trying to comprehend the moon. <laughs> Like, I, I can't do it, you know? Okay, it's big. It's impressive. But I can't actually describe, you know, being in a room and sitting in a, where LeBron James might ask you where the restroom is or that didn't happen. but Or Sarah, Sarah Palin asked me where the restroom was once. <laughs> or David Bowie's there. You know, or Paul McCartney's watching a dress rehearsal or whatever it might be, right? Uh, yeah, I remember there's even a section in the book called Thump, thump, when I was actually having a flashback on air and seeing A-Rod standing there looking at me like, something's wrong with him. There's something wrong with that guy. Like, what's someone help that guy. And I thought, that's A-Rod. Wow. (laughs) That's (laughs) A-Rod. God. And, yeah, I mean, it's very surreal. You, You never really quite get over doing the thing that you've been trying to learn how to do since you were a kid and Paul McCartney is standing there watching. I I was able to go to one of the SNL parties years ago. A friend of mine was on the show. Mike Myers was on the show. And we went down, Mike's brother and I, Paul, went down and saw uh, Paul McCartney as a musical guest, Alec Baldwin as the host. And afterwards, we went to the party and we were sitting with you know, uh, uh, Chris Farley and Phil Hartman smoked all my cigarettes and, you know, uh, Adam Sandler was there. Uh, but then you look just over their shoulders and there's Sting and Paul McCartney and like every famous person you've ever heard of. And it's three or four o'clock in the morning in some club in yeah. New York that I've never been in before. And then Jack Handy, who I had spoken to a fair amount uh, over the course of the evening, came up and said, I've got someone you have to meet. And he brings me away and it's Allen Ginsberg. And he introduces me to yeah. Allen Ginsberg. And Allen Ginsberg says to me, you know, uh, I've, I, I told him I was from Toronto. He said, oh, I've, I've, I've read in Toronto. I said, I know. The last time I saw you read, you read a poem that uh, the refrain was, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. And he said to me, oh, I've written more. Would you like to hear it? And at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, on a dance floor in New York, Allen Ginsberg recited poetry to me. And I just yeah. thought, if that happened to me every week, I don't know how I'd be able to comprehend it. Yeah, and and you should mention, you know, whenever I try to tell people what it's like to be looking at Hillary Clinton, you know, just that's actually Hillary Clinton standing yeah. there, and 
<laughs> and and this hearing people tap dancing in in the background, someone's learning how to dance or learning a dance number, and a llama walks by, <laughs> or you know, an ostrich, and oh, that isn't that guy on the major league all star team this year? And you know, like one time the mates one. The, the sketch never made it on the air, but there was like it was either the National or American League All Star team. The whole team wow. was there in their uniforms, <laughs> and I'm standing there looking at this. Is this this not bizarre enough? And a llama just sort of starts walking by, and I'm like, see, I, I can't explain. You it, know, it can always it's get like weirder. To, yeah. <laughs> well, my yeah, God. because it's like trying to it's like trying to describe the Grand Canyon. I really can't. Yeah. Okay. I can't. I'm trying, but I can't. The way to walk around the back of the theater, and if the stagehands know you and you're trustworthy, they'll let you do it. And you walk in the back and around the side, and you can watch Adele do her thing from 20 feet away. And it's little or Tina Turner. Yeah. You imagine Tina Turner singing "Proud Mary" from 20 feet. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah. Again, it's like oh, I don't actually know how to describe that. I'm trying to, but I can't. That's the end of my conversation with Daryl Hammond. Check out his audiobooks, God If You're Not Up There, dot, 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 and That's Clinton. They're both available at audible.ca. If you saw Black Panther and who didn't see it this year, you'll know who Denai Guerrera is, especially if you're a Walking Dead fan. Stick around. Welcome back, everybody. You know my next guest if you saw Black Panther, who didn't, one of the biggest hits of the year. Her name's Denai Guerrera. You also know her from... The Walking Dead, she played Michonne on that show. She's also a playwright. She's also a theater actress. She's also an activist who helps young women find their place in the world. She's a fascinating person. Here's my conversation with Denai Guerrera. Congratulations on the film. Thank you. You were born in Iowa, mm -hmm. grew up in Africa. Mm -hmm. I wonder what kind of perspective that gave you on the kind of work that you're doing today. Uh, it, it probably gave me almost all my perspective. Yeah. Like it was very much a bicultural experience, one where I was from one place that's very celebrated and, and experienced by the rest of the world, and, and another where I'm, I'm from another place where there's so many fascinating people and stories and experiences and potential that don't get ex exposed as much and don't get celebrated. So I think it very much made me want to you know, find ways to kind of cross that bridge or tie those two places together through the narratives I tell. And when did you become interested in the arts and, and think perhaps writing and acting was going to be the thing that you were going to do? Uh, I was interested in the arts for a while. I mean, I started doing uh, dramatic arts in grade school, mm -hmm. and then throughout high school, I was in a children's performing arts workshop where I really started to learn the craft and understand uh, it's it's the actual discipline around the craft at quite a young age. Uh, but at the same time, I always thought I was probably going to be a lawyer, or yeah. then I was in college, and I was like, oh, I'm going to be a social psychologist and do research around things that can impact you know public policy, and that's where my brain was for so long. But I was always doing theater and, and always connected to the arts at the same time and it was really around uh, my junior year of college where when I had an experience when I was studying abroad in South Africa where I realized um, I just needed to devote myself to my first love and it's it's the arts it's theater I mean, well, it's dramatic arts. Is that why you call arts education nothing short of a revolution? 
Um, because I said that? You did. You did. <laughs> well, New I mean, Yorker magazine. I think really arts, well, arts, I'm, of course, I have a nonprofit called Almasi Arts, and mm -hmm. it really deals with trying to bring opportunity and access and education to African artists who otherwise don't get that, but mm -hmm. who might have the skills, an ability that we, that the world would revel at, but we haven't been able to see it. So it's very important to me to really bring arts education to artists who don't otherwise get to develop their craft, because then they're, they could be an artist who starts a revolution. You don't know. But if they don't get the skill set, they might not be able to expose their abilities. Another quote for you. Uh, as a playwright, you've said, I like to focus on stories that are not told enough. Um, how does this filter through to the roles that you take as an artist? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Really, at the end of the day, I was asked this about what roles I pick. Stories I tell, I mean, that's things that just consume me and right. fill me with anything from outrage to, you know, extreme joy, and I have to tell that story. But with the, the, play, the pieces that I pick as an actor, that has to do with me really feeling a great excitement around a role, like something that grips me in a way where I'm like, I have to be a part of telling that story and I cannot believe, I'm so excited that someone's put the story to the page and mm -hmm. is putting it to the screen. And so that's really where it has to come from. I have to have almost like a childlike giddiness <laughs> about telling a story and that's when I know that I have to, to take that role. Did you have that giddiness when you saw the Black Panther? Film? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the idea of this world, the idea of, of stepping into a, a woman character who is the general of an army and who's very complex and, and very loyal to her nation and, and all the complexities that come therein and, and is in, in charge of the security of the most technologically advanced and most hidden nation mm -hmm. on the planet. I mean, all of that. And then, of course, getting, giving, getting the Ryan Coogler treatment and the Marvel treatment. I mean, it was, that was a real no-brainer in terms of the giddiness. Once I walked out of Ryan's office, I kind of was in a haze. I was like, well, I don't know where my car is. I don't know what day of the week it is. All I know is I got to do this story. Let's talk about the female characters in this film. Uh, they're not competing with one another. It feels right. different. It feels oh, different, and in, in a lot of ways, this movie feels kind of subversive to me. Amen! And I've been using that word. Have you? Is that another quote you got? It's not, no. Ah. That came from up here. So, <laughs> but it feels, like it, <laughs> it feels subversive to me because uh, the female characters are treated uh, differently, I think, than they have been in, in, in other superhero movies, and in, uh, I suppose, movies in general. Mm, uh, mm, and mm, the mm. African nation of mm. Wakana is treated differently. Amen. I think that's really exciting, and that's yeah. a big part of why I was, ex was a tr that's part of my childlike giddiness right. about it all, because I could see that. I could see that by how he described it, and he stayed very true to what he described, and so did Marvel, and, and, and we got to be very intricate collaborators as the women um, on, in the story. We got to share our thoughts, our perspectives. We got our our ideas were heard and 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 it allowed to be expressed and I think that that was also something that allowed an ownership mm -hmm. that we as the act as the actresses got to which you don't often get and uh, that was really an exciting uh, thing about it and so there was there is something very different about how these characters are treated and I think that that's um, that's exciting and people I, yes, want to see this yes, they are and 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 I think that part of that comes from the subversive nation of it. We're, yes. we're, we're flipping things on its head a little Exactly, bit. about Africa as well. I mm -hmm. mean, of course, part of my frustration that led me to write was because I couldn't see stories that really allowed the, any sort of truths to be told about the continent and about our potential and our power and our, our dimensionality and, and our perspective and our personalities and, and our languages. And mm -hmm. so what was really exciting to me was to see, once again, to see 
this all of that embodied in what Wakanda and what uh, the Black Panther narrative brings, all from the African perspective, once again, completely unprecedented. And why? Well, I don't know why, but it is unprecedented. Well, there's a couple of interesting moments in the film, or a lot of interesting moments, and a couple that really struck me. And when I was thinking about the, the idea of presenting Wakanda as uh, uh, a sovereign nation, one that wasn't colonialized, mm-hmm. all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and at, at one point, uh, Black Panther's sister says, uh, you don't scare me, colonizer, or whatever the line is. <laughs> it is fantastic. And it yes. got a huge laugh from the yes, audience. Yes. Because it, it really felt like in this movie, that, that very strong points are being made, but in absolutely the, the context of popular culture and in you know the, the context of these big Marvel movies. Yes, no, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, well, that was what was really, really exciting. The idea of actually being able to enact a nation that was never colonized and all the commentary that goes into that, because there is a great, I grew up in post-colonial Africa, mm-hmm. there's a lot of re-piecing together you have to do after, right. you, after colonization ends. We moved back to Zimbabwe shortly after it had been uh, made it independent. Yeah. And there's a lot of work that goes into reclaiming who you are and what your power and potential truly is when you've been colonized. Well, and where your place in the world is. And where your place is yeah. the world, and how you define your place in the world. And what's beautiful is the idea of showing a nation that the one thing that a lot of the colonized peoples don't have is they don't have that part of their history that tells them who they would have been had right. they never been colonized. Right. And the beauty of Wakanda is that it shows this this beautiful. It's like an it's like a celebration because there's so many things are pulled from actual. Stories and narratives. Wakanda itself is somewhat um, connected to the idea of Lesotho, which was protected by its terrain and 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 developed on its own. So there are all types of, of things that it's pulling from, from costume to language that are actually African. And that idea is so um, it is very subversive, mm-hmm. and because it's a celebration of a place that often gets distorted or misrepresented or, or presented as something deficient, which we all know Africa so is not. Let's talk about the resources alone, right. which you know the ownership of them, as you see with Wakanda you see what can happen when there's true ownership. Black Panther places this African story in a Western context in a lot of ways, big Hollywood film, mm-hmm. big budget, the entire thing in Marvel film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of strikes me that that has what you've done in your playwright, your work as a playwright as well. Mm. Is that off the mark or is that... Well, I mean, yes, the goal definitely was. I, I, I've said this recently that I sort of feel like I was a bit of a, of a, you know, a mad scientist. I'd never <laughs> seen anything like what I was trying to create. Right, right. I'd never seen the African female story being told in the Western, on the Western stage from, the, from a true African female perspective. And so I, I really felt like a mad scientist. But my hypothesis was that, indeed, a Western audience will embrace a story from this perspective as long as it's a really rich, powerful, mm-hmm. dynamic, good story. And that it doesn't have to only come from one perspective. People think, oh, but doesn't there need to be a Caucasian um, a protagonist right, right, right. that steps into this world? And my argument was absolutely not. In fact, I'm not going to write a Caucasian character yeah. at all, and this will still work. <laughs> but as humans want to see human stories. Exactly, that, and that, it's that, universal. Yeah. And it's such a difficult thing to have people grow to understand over mm-hmm. time, people who tend to make decisions around production. But I think really we've made some breakthroughs in the last decade, and I think that this is really the epitome of a breakthrough is seeing this, this movie come to pass. I've read about you growing up in Zimbabwe, and you were a fan of Dynasty, and you know shows like that. that well, I was watching it. Well, I was a little kid, and I was watching it. But was it was on screen. TV. It's what you had <laughs> exactly. on TV. And this leads into a point about representation. So, little girls watching Black Panther, seeing you as Michonne on The Walking Dead, uh, and and you know as Tupac Shakur's mother in in that film, uh, see themselves represented on stage and screen. 
Uh, how important is that? I mean, it's important to me because I know how important representation is. You don't get to see a lot of it when you're when I was growing up. There wasn't a lot, mm -hmm. and it was it, it is something that I would have really yearned for: see more people who look like me right. telling stories and telling a variety of stories. So, I mean, if it is impacting young girls and and making them feel uh, a, a degree of empowerment or feeling more valued in the fact that they're seeing stories of people that look like them celebrated, uh, that to me is everything. Like mm -hmm. that's 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 everything. What part does social commitment play in your work and in your life? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Zimbabwean raised. I'm an American born. Right there is social commitment. You understand what the experience of, of empowerment through from being from one place and, and just having that be a, a powerful place to be from mm -hmm. and the experience of, of development and, and, and coming in, into your power from being from Zimbabwe. So for me, it's very important to, for everything I do to be about helping you know, bring more people into their power. And that's something that with my arts organization, the idea of, of access and opportunity and finding great talent and bringing them to the United States and other parts of the world so that they can actually find their craft even more deeply and then to take it back home. So the idea to me is very much, and then girls and women is a massive passion of mine because you know a lot of girls and women who look like me on the continent haven't had an iota of the opportunities I've had. So, and, but they're my sisters, they're my daughters, they're my mothers. And so for me, it's very important that whatever I do um, is, is also about bringing them up in every way I can figure out to do so. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a pleasure to Great see to you. Great to meet Thank you. you. That's Denai Guerrero. Keep an eye open for her and all the upcoming Black Panther movies and keep an eye open for her plays and any chance that you get to see her on stage, take it. Fascinating person. My thanks to Denai Guerrera and Daryl Hammond. Most of all, my thanks to you for listening and my thanks to Mark Tang for working the board. We'll talk again next week.